This is Africa Digest. It is 1900 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Good evening. Welcome to the program. You are listening to us on 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band. That's if you are in West Africa. All across the African continent, we are also available on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi. I'm with Onel Nzinti, Wissani Matebula, and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. More than 8,000 Ethiopians crossed into Kenya to escape what they describe as a massacre of people belonging to the Oromo ethnic group. South African health authorities launch a groundbreaking automated medicine dispensing system. In economics, the Namibian Ministry of Health instructs food inspectors to remove a product linked to listeriosis from shelves in shops all over the country. And in sport, new twist in the SAFA Presidential Elective Congress. Anel Nzinti has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Police in Kenya say they uncovered a plot last month to carry out a major attack in the capital, Nairobi. They say they recovered a large scale of weapons along with flags of the militant group Al-Shabaab, which operates in Kenya and Somalia. The BBC's Fanny Don Omindo reports. The Inspector General of Police, Joseph Boynet, revealed the extent of the attack his men had foiled. He said the target would have been a government building in Nairobi. He put on display explosives found in a car, which he said could have killed hundreds and destroyed buildings within a radius of 250 meters of the target. The vehicle had also been fitted with shrapnel, which he said would have ensured maximum casualties. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on 19 Russians, accusing them of interference in the 2016 U.S. elections and alleged cyber attacks. They include 13 individuals that Justice Department Special Counsel Robert Mueller charged last month. The sanctions are being described in Washington as the strongest action that the Trump administration has taken thus far against Moscow. Former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has called for dialogue following the events that led to his resignation last year. He spoke for the first time to the media about his removal from office. Speaking in Harare, the former leader said he still aggrieved by what transpired last year. The Democratic Republic of Congo's government will this month and pass a new resolution which will plan the gradual withdrawal of the UN mission in the country. The UN mission has been deployed in the DRC since more than 17 years now, with a year mandate renewed every year by the UN Security Council resolution. The resolution in MONUSCO is expected on March 27th as the mission's mandate comes to an end on March 31. General Bamweza has more. As the security situation went on deteriorating, especially in the North Kivu province, where dozens of armed groups continue to violate human rights by killing, raping, looting and more, the UN Security Council then decided to change the mission with the main mandate of protecting civilians. The mission then changed even the name to become the UN Mission for Stabilization of the Democratic Republic of Congo, well known as MONUSCO. Another resolution gave MONUSCO the mandate not only to protect the civilians, but also to neutralize armed groups operating here. 
And lastly, Kenya's powerful teachers' union is called off of a month-long strike after reaching an agreement with the government on pay. The strikes have paralyzed the country's education system and fractured relations between teachers, parents and the state. While President Alpha Conde has faced criticism for allowing the industrial action to drag so long, the union has gained a guarantee of a 40% pay increase agreed in 2017, which was only partially implemented in February. The two sides have also agreed to negotiations on May 2 to the 25th and to a, a promise that strikers would not be punished. Channel Africa News, I am Onilinsinsi. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Onele. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. Your time is 19.05 Central African time. Now, more than 8,000 Ethiopians have crossed into Kenya to escape what they describe as a massacre of people belonging to the Oromo ethnic group, the largest tribe in Ethiopia. James Shimanyula has been closely monitoring the entry of the Ethiopians into Kenya, and he filed the following report for us. The massacre reportedly carried out by Ethiopian authorities on Oromo, the country's largest ethnic group, has forced more than 8,000 of them to cross into neighboring Kenya for their safety. To get a clear picture of what is happening in Ethiopia, here is a young Oromo man telling us candidly about the atrocities happening in the Horn of Africa nation. The man preferred not to be named for his own safety, and security reason. It was pre-planned massacre that we are feeling second we are feeling the solution we have is to come across the Kenya site. We are crossing to the Kenya around ten route over Telu route. Everywhere we are crossing and our great problem is the military. Because the state of emergency has been declared, the government is going more to autocracy and authoritarians. How we feel? No democracy, no rights. There was no protest there, there was no congregation of people there. No gathering of people there, military fire at the people. So we need good governance and government in Ethiopia unless we not feel unsecured. We need international community to help us. We need more support because we are becoming stressed on the people of these sites. We need international community to help us. Confirming that indeed the Oromo people are being targeted by the Ethiopian government, the anonymous refugee from the Horn of Africa nation said, We have been targeted, particularly the Oromo community have been targeted. We don't have any security and our solution is to across to this, our neighboring country, Kenya, that we feel secure. People are crossing to this area more and more. The students have lost their schools. Good governance and government is our great problems. As you have heard on the media, the Ethiopian government has vacant position in the position of the Prime Minister and we are feeling insecure till now. As has been said at the beginning, more than 8,000 Ethiopians have crossed into Kenya. Here is Deputy Governor of Moyale County, which separates Kenya from Ethiopia. The situation here in Moyale is that uh, currently we are having more than uh, 8,000 people. Uh, but they are not stationed in one place. 
we have uh, some in Somare, some in Butie, and some in Sesi. But uh, the bigger number is along the, the border lines heading up to Sololo. Uh, some are in ba, ba, uh, uh, some are in Sololo. As you head this way, this side, you'll find many many people that have resided there. There is no shelter. Uh, there is no housing that is there. There is no there is no food. That is the challenge that we are going through as at now. Uh, we are not unable. We are unable also to, to get the right number of people because people are still coming up to now, and we cannot even uh, qualify them to be refugees because we don't know for how long they'll be residing on this side. Deputy Governor of Kenya's Moele County is optimistic that the Ethiopians will stay in Kenya for a short time before they return to their country. We are expecting the, the situation to be very temporary. Uh, as a county government, we, we have taken care of them for the last uh, four days. We've given them shelter. That is a place uh, to stay. We've given them food, We've given them water and other things that uh, they need, even health, uh, medical attention. We also appreciate the work that has been done by Kenya Red Cross Society because they've been with us since the inception of this incident. They've really provided uh, non-food items and uh, medical attention and uh, some drugs also from their side. Uh, an officer from uh, UNHCR was also on the ground to assess the situation. So the greatest and the most important thing at the moment that we want is we want to appeal to the national government for support uh, to provide food and other aid. We also want to appeal to the other humanitarian agencies to provide us with all kinds of support so that these people can be taken care of. That was Deputy Governor of Moyale County in Kenya, where more than 8,000 Ethiopians have taken refuge after escaping what they characterize as a massacre taking place in their country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Your time is 19.10 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with the program. Let's go to the Democratic Republic of Congo now, where the government believes that the new resolution to be passed this month as the United Nations Security Council will plan the gradual withdrawal of the UN mission in the country. The UN Security Council new resolution on MONUSCO is expected on March 27, as the mission's mandate is ending on March 31. MONUSCO is just waiting to implement whatever new mandate it will be given. Jean-Noël Bamwenze is in Kinshasa. The UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has been deployed here since more than 17 years now, with a one-year mandate renewed every year by the UN Security Council resolutions. The mission came here first with an observation mandate and was known as the UN Observation Mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUC. Its role was to observe the situation and report to the UN Security Council. As the security situation went on deteriorating, especially in the North Kivu province, where dozens of armed groups continue to violate human rights by killing, raping, looting and more, the UN Security Council then decided to change the mission with the main mandate of protecting civilians. The mission then changed even the name to become the UN Mission for Stabilization of the Democratic Republic of Congo, well known as MONUSCO. Another resolution gave MONUSCO the mandate not only to protect the civilians but also to neutralize
neutralize armed groups operating here. But since then, authorities here have never expressed the satisfaction about the UN mission's intervention here. Remember, President Joseph Kabila criticized the MONUSCO a few weeks ago, telling a press conference here the mission has never neutralized any armed group in this country. We have always asked our friends of MONUSCO to tell us only a single armed group they have already succeeded to neutralize, to eradicate. Not even one. And that's indeed where this country's government comes up and believes the new resolution to be passed this month. The UN Security Council will plan MONUSCO gradual withdrawal. As the mission's mandate is ending this month on 31st, a new resolution is expected on March 27th. But indeed, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, She Okitondo, reminds that MONUSCO has not come here to stay. MONUSCO mustn't come and settle in our country forever. We need now a withdrawal plan of that force. Although this country is facing a crucial moment of electoral process, it's important for the UN Security Council to pass the process of gradual withdrawal of the MONUSCO troops from our country. The UN mission here is just waiting for the UN Security Council to decide. Since everything is discussed in New York, MONUSCO spokesperson Florence Marshall told Channel Africa the mission will implement whatever will be its new mandate. It's a discussion which is held at the level of the Security Council, the, the members of the Security Council in New York. There will be a lot of meetings on the DRC in New York since the mandate uh, will expire at the end of the month. And uh, so it's up to the member of the Security Council together with the government of the DRC to decide what will be the uh, next mandate of the mission, if next mandate. On the most of people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo believe the presence of the UN mission here remains of great importance. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congo. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks a hundred years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of life. This is Africa Digest.
It is 19.15 Central African time, info at channelafrica.co.za. As part of the Anti-Racism Week in South Africa, the Ahmed Kathrwada Foundation today launched the pilot phase of a new racism reporting app. The Zimele Racism Reporting App intends to aggregate data and provide a trend analysis of hotspot areas where racism may be prevalent. The purpose of the Anti-Racism Week is to create a broader public awareness of racism and how it affects individuals and the broader South African society. This is in order to identify, promote and build on good practices and initiatives and to prevent, reduce and eradicate racism. The theme for this year is hashtag root out racism. The seven-day annual campaign ends on 21 March, which is Human Rights Day in South Africa. Spokesperson of the foundation, Zakira Vadi. Simele racism reporting app. The pilot phase of it was launched this morning. If people want to access the app, they should type in Zira on Play Store and they'd be able to download it from there. At this stage, like I said, it is the pilot phase of Project, meaning there may still be some technical glitches, there's still some things that we'd like to add to the app. So from the 15th to the 30th of March is basically the test period for this app. And we want to basically assess user functionality, how easy it is to use, are the systems working, that sort of a thing. So you download it, once you download it, you basically ask a set of questions about the racial incident that may have occurred. So you can fill it in for yourself, you can fill it in for another person, you can fill it in anonymously if you'd like, or you can put in your contact details and we can then get back to you. So it asks you this series of questions about the incident, what had taken place, mm. describe what had taken place, where it had taken place, and that information that then gets fed back to the Kasrada Foundation. Mm. Now, how effective, Zakira, will an app be, you know, in terms of this fight against racism? And I suppose it's a very innovative way of uh, thinking around tackling this issue because for the longest time there really has been a drought in terms of different ways of attacking this uh, very serious disease within our society. Definitely. I think it will be effective in, in several areas. The one is you need to recognize the importance of technology in fighting surges like racism in modern-day society. So as much as technology can amplify racist voices, so think of the Penny Sparrow incident or people using uh, social media as a mobilization tool to mobilize around uh, right-wing or very conservative views, technology can also be used for good. And this is one of the ways that it can be used to further the fight against anti-racism, to further the fight against racism. So what this is intended to do is basically give us an analysis or some sort of information about what's taking place with regards to racism on the ground. So if we get, for example, five reports coming through from a particular school, we know that that's a hotspot area and it may require some sort of facilitation, some sort of intervention. Similarly, it will allow us to strengthen our networks around dealing with issues of racism. So we are currently in the early stages of engagement with groups like the South African Human Rights Commission, various legal resource groups that would be able to plug in and help support on the back end work. So when a complaint comes through, who would be able to follow up with this particular case? And it would include groups that would possibly have a national presence or they could have a community-based presence. So if there's a racial mm. interest, for example, in Kuruman, Mm -hmm. The foundation wouldn't be able to go there physically and intervene and try and facilitate the matter, but a local church or a legal institution that stays there may be able to, to assist.
And yeah. that's what the, the app is meant to do. It's meant to provide a platform for grassroots intervention. Now let's take a look at uh, the anti-racism week and uh, with the strides that it's made, if any. How impactful has this been? Um, well, anti-racism week itself is only in its third year. So I think over the past three years, it has gained support. It has gained popularity. We are well aware of the fact that you won't be able to change racist attitudes in just a week, which is why this year's theme is hashtag root out racism. It's about ensuring that there's long-term work, sustainable work in addressing the root causes of racism. Because it's easy for us to get all high up when there's a penny sparrow type of headline or when there's a case that appears where a man is, is forced into a coffin or something taking place at a school around language issues. So these make the headlines. But what are the things that sustain these racial incidents? What are the mindsets, the policies, the cultures and systems in place that sustain this thing? And I think up until we are able to identify those policies in schools, in workplaces, across different sectors of society, and up until we're able to discuss measures to deal with these root causes, we're not going to get rid of racism. Zakira Vardy, spokesperson at the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation. He is, she is rather in conversation there with Zekona Miso. The head of the African Peer Review Mechanism, APRM, Eddie Maluka, says the mechanism is working on a plan to use its review processes as another way of preventing conflict on the continent. Maluka said this during an event held in Rwanda to celebrate 15 years of the APRM's existence. The governance monitoring tool has 37 member countries out of 55 and has reviewed 22 countries during its 15-year period. The APRM was established in 2000 by the new Partnership for Africa Heads of State and Government Implementation Committee as a self-monitoring instrument and its membership is voluntary. Maluka says there is a lot of uh, there is a lot rather that APRM has achieved over the last 15 years. All I can tell you is that we've done so much progress over the last two years and one of the things that has happened is that uh, uh, as a way of recognizing the work that we are doing as the African peer review mechanism, the Assembly of the African Union has given us additional responsibilities. They have now asked us to track governance across the board on, on the continent. So we track governance even beyond uh, those who are members. So we'll be, we'll be looking at governance trends in Africa. We intend to launch our first report in January next year. And they've also asked us in addition to that, to track and to be a reporting instrument on the implementation of Agenda 2063 and, and, and the Sustainable Development Goals. So, so really, this are the, so now we have, you could say, our core mandate, which you know, the historical mandate of reviewing countries that are our members. But now, in addition to that, we also have these two new responsibilities. And the third thing that we are now working on also is how to have, how to utilize the APRM as an instrument also for conflict prevention on the continent. So we're really going into these four areas. We had President Kenyatta, who was our chairperson at that time, who really took lead in revitalizing the APRM. Now he has been succeeded by, and successfully so, by the way, now he has been replaced by uh, President Idris Deli of Chad, who has also given us his, five, his two-year plan as to the areas he wants to focus on. So so really the momentum, the ownership the leadership, the championship of our, of our leaders is there and, and for me this is a very good thing for our movement. A mixed bag of uh, fortune so one would say Prof because only 37 uh, countries have uh, joined in out of a possible 55 and only 22 countries have been reviewed uh, during the 15 year period but one of the biggest concerns Prof is uh, that some of the recommendations that the APRM makes really make it to the program of action 
action which translates into non-implementation. What are you doing to address these shortcomings, uh, Prof? No, thank you very much. You are making the correct observations. And in fact, we are here in, in Kigali, in Rwanda. We are celebrating and we also just considered a two-day methodology forum, a second methodology forum. And now as I'm talking to you, there is a panel of high-level panel sitting dealing with exactly that, the universal accession uh, that we want to see all members joining, but this must be substantive and quality membership. And they are dealing with those issues that uh, first, uh, uh, if you are a member, what are your responsibilities? Establishment of the independent national structures and so on. And really, these are the issues that came out of the of the methodology forum to make sure that we improve how we follow up. So we need to are going to be doing a lot of work in making sure we improve. Uh, we focus on quality membership. You are a member, you assume responsibilities, you undertake reviews, and once you have undertaken reviews, then you implement and there are certain things that we have agreed in terms of what needs to be done, how do we follow up with countries, etc., etc. And then in terms of reaching out to other countries, we will, we, we have now, you know, Namibia has joined now, uh, this country, Gambia uh, has joined, and then we have other countries that have expressed interest. So we want to join, we'll continue to reach out to other countries to join, but the point that uh, uh, people are making in this meeting is that it has to be substantive and quality membership. So you join, you also assume your responsibility for that. Now you talk of uh, Gambia having uh, joined as well. Has uh, President Adama Barrow uh, finally signed the accession memorandum of understanding to officially uh, become a member? No, well, not yet because of it's just a scheduling issue. Yeah, but uh, at the meeting his, his minister came with a message from the government of expression of uh, accession. But you know because APRN is at the president's level, unfortunately the minister could not sign. But we consider that statement to be legally sufficient to say they have joined and they are now members now will be going we're, so we're supposed to have gone there last week but we will be going soon Hope before the end of april the president will have signed we are not also once they sign we'll be running workshop for national authorities for for the country on the responsibilities and uh, what are the next steps that come with, uh, with being a member now let's uh, briefly talk about uh, the ugandan review process uh, prof the ugandan civil society is uh, concerned here about the process uh, they say that the ugandan review process had been rushed uh, and of course, the country review mission was fielded in October last year, and the country was reviewed uh, at beginning of this year, breaking all uh, speed records. Would you say there was sufficient uh, consultations with uh, the civil society in Uganda at the time when uh, the country was being reviewed? No, there are, there are two levels that this process have at least uh, where this process happened. The first one is the in-country process. So in Uganda, there was an in-country process involving which was led by the Ugandan. Uh, National Governing Council, which is located in the Ugandan uh, National Development Authority. And the, the other ones who, who led, uh, because APRM is based on the principle of self-assessment. So a country, we have a questionnaire which has been agreed to. So a, the country administers this questionnaire through the National Governing Council and reviews itself. And uh, they use independent institutions. So we work with them in identification of identifying institutions. We come and as, as, uh, advise them on this and that. But it's a country that does that. And once the report is done, then the report, the country, the National Governing Council must call a meeting of, of, of representatives in the country to validate the national report. So once the report has been validated, then it's also discussed with government. It's, uh, I was there when we were handing it over to President Museveni and so on as a ceremony. And then it was then that then the government then said we are ready, the national report, the report is ready. Then that's when then us as the external people, we deploy our review. Our review missions are essentially a validation of the report.
what the country uh, develops. But there are all these requirements. So, in, like for example, as I'm talking to you now, I think on the 16th, Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, their, their self-assessment report has been ready since last year. It went through cover, to government to, to look at it, to discuss, to make their input. And now it's going for a national validation meeting. So after the national validation meeting is concluded, then they send us a note to say we are ready. So maybe those, uh, those people we have been talking to were not involved in the Ugandan process. That is Professor Eddie Maluka, head of the African Peer Review Mechanism on the line from Kigali in Rwanda. He was in conversation with Kumbero Mujerere. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It's 1929 Central African time. Now, an ATM pharmacy that gives patients with chronic illnesses their repeat medication in under three minutes has been launched in Alexandra, north of Johannesburg. The Pharmacy Dispensing Unit, or PDU, which is a world first, was developed by a team comprising experts from Right to Care and Right E Pharmacy in collaboration with the South African Department of Health in the Gauteng province. The robotic medication dispenser will improve access to treatment as it dramatically reduces waiting times and congestion in public health care facilities. For more on this historic launch, here's the director of Right E Pharmacy, Fanny Hendricks. It's a South African innovation which we are very proud of. Um, you know, obviously it's been developed, uh, uh, you know, over a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, so today is an exciting day in South Africa for us. Um, you know, it's, it's really developed uh, around patient-centric problems, uh, specifically focused in, uh, uh, in for South Africa and, uh, and the public health sector. Uh-huh. And you launched it in Alexandra Township. Why did you choose that particular place? The facilities in Alexandra Township for public health services, and especially pharmaceutical service, um, the facilities are quite overburdened. It's a very high-dense area. Um, there's a lot of public health patients, and yeah, the patient challenges in the area is, is, is quite unique. And uh, and we thought that's a, that's a fitting place to 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 start technology uh, first. So how does it work exactly? Um, you're calling it an an ATM. Is it like a, a money machine? No. So so I think I think you know the the, the ATM is just the, the front face of it. it. Looks like an ATM. So um, but it's actually quite a, 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 a engineered uh, solution. So uh, behind behind the wall uh, of the ATM face, you, you get a robotic storage system with a robotic arm. It's got an integrated conveyor belt and a patient or product labeling system. And that is all connected to a cloud software dispensing solution. In essence, what that means is 
We've got a we've got a, a, a pharmacy call center uh, manned by pharmaceutical staff, which obviously talk and discuss uh, health-related issues with the patient, but also got a full view of the patient's record, and uh, they can assist the patient and dispense the, uh, the medication. They can select the month dispensing. They can add items. They can add quantities remotely, and they can physically then live dispense and label the parcel to the ATM face. So the ATM is just the face of it. At the back, it's quite uh, it's quite a unique uh, innovation. So there are people there, as you would find in any facility that is similar to that. So there are people who are um, manning this machine. It's remotely manned, but the physical site got a pharmacist on site, and it's also got for a, a, a pharmacy assistant on site. It's got a information desk uh, in order to educate people how to use the technology. Um, and be there for assistance when required. Are there going to be more in other parts of the country? Yes, so the pilot project includes electric, which started today, um, and as we speak, we are we are activating two sites in Soweto, in Bara Mall and in the Fire Mall, and that will be followed by uh, Deep Slurt. Why are you choosing shopping centers for these? The reason for that is obviously about patient convenience. Um, you know, when you're collecting your, your, your chronic medication monthly, you know, you need to take a day off of work, um, you need to travel normally to the facility. So there's obviously a convenience issue and there's obviously a financial impact on the patient as well. So the reason why we took, uh, you know, I would say uh, the very urban shopping centers is we've combined it with travel routes. So it's normally next to a taxi route and uh, some of the best retailers or major retailers. Um, so what happens as well is, you know, it's open for extended hours. We've got about 50, 53% more hours available per month than the public facility. So most of our patients seem to be liking to collect it before they go to work. So it's open from 7 till late and it's open over seven days a week. Or they do, do the collection when they're combining it with their weekly or monthly shopping. Now, let's talk about the fact that um, a, a lot of people, when you introduce new technologies to them, um, would be frightened of new technologies. How will you have the orientation of those that will be using um, these machines? Yeah, I think that was one of our biggest challenges when we started it off, to think what, how, how the patients will, 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 will act with it. And, uh, and, you know, take to it, and uh, we were actually surprised. So we've seen our first 5,000 patients, um, and the people that are coming down for the second time doesn't want any help anymore. It's been set up actually exactly as like you like you draw money at a bank. It's really a five-step process. And, and again, you know, if you look back at history, when the first ATMs for money was, 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 was the market, people say, you know, um, you know how safe it is, you know, how, you know it won't work, etc., and now you get uh, ATMs all over in the street without protection. So, uh, you know, the lucky thing about our site is it's well protected. You need to go physically into the store still. But, yeah, we've, we've, the update's been received very, very positive. So what happens? Do I need a card? Do I need a prescription? How, uh, who uses it? If you're a chronic patient uh, using public facilities, and let's, let's take Alex for an example, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, got eight facilities in Alex. Uh, the, the healthcare professional will deem yourself or vet yourself as a chronic stable patient. That's for anybody that just normally knows how to use their medication. They're stable on their chronic medication. So the healthcare, uh, um, the healthcare person will, will down refer the patient for further collections and uh, to the PDU site. So we will enroll them at the site. Uh, we will capture their prescription and we will issue a, a membership card to them. We will also link their ID as a way of reference or ID book, 
and uh, we will also uh, issue them with a unique pin that the patient can select. Once the, once the patient is enrolled and the prescription is loaded on the dispensing system, the patient can come and collect any time convenient to them. Um, the patient will also receive a reminder when it's time. And uh, yeah, what makes it quite cool is the fact that you can also collect two months worth of supply at a time, which actually increases the convenience towards the patient. That's a director of Wright uh, E-Pharmacy, Fanny Hendricks, joining us on the line earlier today. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Nineteen thirty-seven Central African time. Now only twenty-one percent of people with jobs in South Africa have tertiary education. Yet there are millions of unemployed graduates. The South African Institute of Race Relations, in a recent survey, says this is due to the types of qualifications graduates study. The survey also shows that sectors such as mining and manufacturing, which traditionally absorbed low and semi-skilled labour, account for a decrease in contribution to employment. Gabriella McKay, analyst at the Institute of Race Relations, explains. These sectors now account for the majority of South Africa's formal employment. Those are finance, trade and the government sectors. So they each employ close on 23%. They make up 23% each of formal employment. The sectors that have been suffering have been construction, mining and manufacturing. If you go back about 20 years, they constituted about 40% of South Africa's formal employment, and now combined, they make up about 23. And traditionally, those sectors, so mining, manufacturing, construction, they absorbed a lot of South Africa's low- and semi-skilled labor. Now what we see is we see that high-skilled labor, which often requires you to have tertiary education, that's growing a lot faster. But we still have the problem where not enough of South Africa's populace has gone to a tertiary institution for an education. So only 21% of all employed people have tertiary education. We still know there's a massive amount of people who need some sort of training and to be upskilled so that they can move into the sort of semi-skilled sectors and hopefully one day higher skilled sectors of the economy. What, though, could be the reason for these sectors that previously used to be those that were the the ones contributing 
majorly to employment, uh, which is mining, manufacturing and construction. Why is it that now, um, you know, the tables have turned and they, they produce less numbers? In all economies, we see how the structures of those economies change, and most developed countries now do tend to move towards, you know, service the services sector. So we naturally see that sort of thing happening. But I think what happened, or has happened, was um, mining, unfortunately, is dictated by the markets. If there's not a massive demand for commodity, then mining suffers. But in terms of our construction and manufacturing. Manufacturing alone has always been a sort of problem for South Africa, and we've never really focused on making sure that we further refine our goods. If we look at the issues we've had with dams recently, roads, tunnels, all of those things, government needs to focus on building, and that would actually be a major boost to our construction industry, simply because we do have a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built and also maintained. So it's a good infrastructure program, combination of government and business can help fix you know, South Africa's infrastructure problem and also then employ and skill people at the same time. Now, ironically, only 21% of people uh, with jobs have tertiary education, and yet there's also a high number of unemployed graduates in the country. What does this uh, speak to? What does this mean for us? I think it speaks to the type of thing people are studying. So what we have is we have people who don't have the requisite degrees and or skills for the jobs that are available. So your education isn't exactly tailored to what the jobs market is. So we've seen, we've, I think we've seen a lot of graduates who maybe, again, um, the field that they've chosen to study is not the field necessarily where there are a lot of jobs. Because, again, most of those jobs are going to be in things like trade, finance, government sectors. And that often involves, I suppose you having to have studied some sort of degree of economics or engineering or whatever else it may be, depending. So I think we've seen a mismatch in knowing what the economy needs and what graduates want to study. That's by no means to say we should dictate to people what they have to study, but I think we also need to find a way to be clear to people going into tertiary education or people looking to upskill what what your education actually has to do. I think there's always been a gap in this country between your what your education provides you and what a job market requires you to have. They've never entirely matched up. So if we can find a way of saying these are where the jobs are, so the jobs in finance require you to have X, Y, Z, these are the skills you're going to need. If this is what you want to go into, then no, you need to have the following qualifications. I think that would better sort of... Um, allow people to know what education, what experience, and what skills they need to get jobs. Mm. I mean, are we likely to see this you know, pattern of high unemployment perhaps changing or decreasing? Um, can, can there be a way, really, um, for South Africa to, to address this? The, the way is to make sure that we put in place proper policies that will encourage people to invest in this country. That's by saying things like, you know, land reform will go ahead responsibly and it won't, you know, be the sort of land reform that's expropriation without compensation where no one owns land and the state sort of leases land because that's not the way our system works and it doesn't encourage people to invest if they fear that, you know, the land you're factory system might be expropriated and then what happens to your investment. So it, we need to have sensible policies in place that encourage people to invest. We need to find a way of tailoring, of matching up education and the gaps in the economy.
That is Gabriella McKay, analyst at the South African Institute of Race Relations, talking to Komuto Mopulane. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Nineteen forty five Central African time. Here's Usana Matebula with your economics. Thanks, Pumelele, and good evening. Anglo-Dutch consumer giant Unilever has uh, named uh, the Netherlands over London as its uh, main headquarters. The move deals a blow to Britain's efforts to keep multinational companies con- out on outside following Brexit. Unilever, which uh, owns dozens of uh, brands, including Lipton Tea, Flora, and Dove, currently has joint head offices in both cities. The company says the move will have no impact on its 7,300 employees in Britain and 3,100 in the Netherlands. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. Unilever was formed in 1929 from the merger of two margarine manufacturers, one British and one Dutch. Since then, it's existed as two separate corporate structures, a Dutch company and a British one, with headquarters in both London and Rotterdam. Now it wants to streamline its business to become a single company based in the Netherlands. Both Unilever and the British government insist the decision has nothing to do with the UK's planned departure from the European Union. The new company will retain Unilever's existing operations in Britain, where it employs more than 7,000 people. Economic analyst Davi Roth says uh, South Africa's economy could grow beyond 2% this year if government makes the right policy decisions. He was speaking at a business seminar in Centurion. Roth elaborates on his keynote address, which he titled, South Africa is going nowhere fast. I'm more optimistic about economic prospects, 
growth this year than the Minister of Finance. I expect economic growth about 1.6% or so. But the irony is that we are more optimistic than the Minister of Finance and we talk about strong economic growth when the economy expands to the rate stronger than 1%. But in fact, what we need in South Africa is economic growth closer to 5%. We really need to grow this economy at an absolute minimum at the population growth, but preferably at a rate much, much stronger and around about 5% or so. So certainly I'm negative or pessimistic as far as that is concerned. But we certainly can do a lot to get this economy to start growing faster. But unfortunately, I do not really see all those changes that are necessary to get this economy to grow faster. Mining production for South Africa bounced back in uh, January, but it was lower than uh, economists had expected. Status say data shows that mining production increased by 2.4% year-on-year in January up from 0.1% in December. The main positive contributors were iron ore and other non-metallic minerals. Platinum group metals and gold were significant negative contributors. And it's a World Consumer's Rights Day. And to commemorate the day, South Africa's national credit regulator, NCR, is calling on consumers to be wary of credit providers that charge an upfront fee before granting them loans. The regulator's Maurice Malulek. We have a lot of our registrants. Yeah, I'm talking about credit providers and debt counselors who obviously some take advantage of consumers that are actually maybe blacklisted as an example. And you'll find that those are aware of the fact that they can't be granted any loan. And on debt counselor side, it's making of promises whereby they are made to believe that debt counseling will actually save them about maybe 60 or 70% of their monthly installment, and which is not the spirit of the act. Debt counseling was never meant to be a savings mechanism. And Moody's Credit Ratings Agency has downgraded Tunisia's credit rating on its deteriorating fiscal situation, complicating the government's plans to raise uh, capital on international markets. The ratings company lowered Tunisia's long-term issuer credit rating by one notch to B2, which is five levels below investment grade, and on par with Argentina, Nigeria, Cameroon and Kenya. Moody's, which had last downgraded Tunisia seven months ago, assigned it a stable outlook. The ratings drop is liable to hobble the government's efforts to raise money abroad to help defuse the unrest that's mounted over rising prices and high unemployment. Financial indicators now, the US dollar is at 11.77, South African rands at 9.38, Botswana Pula 9.57, Zambian Kwacha also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and 80 cents against the euro. Commodities gold $1,327, platinum $959 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $64.93 per barrel. And that's your economics news right now. Thank you very much, Usain. It is now time for Sports News. Here's Mosibut.
Good evening, sports fans. The SAFA elective Congress scheduled for the 24th of this month is going to be postponed following an agreement between the two presidential candidates. The incumbent, Dr. Denis Jordan, as well as Ace Ngobo, signed in the early hours of this morning. Now, this follows an intervention by FIFA who sent COSAFA and Zambia Football Association President Philip Chinyangwa to come and mediate between the two wearing factions. Ngobo, who has always maintained that he's not interested in the presidential seat, has been challenging the processes following in preparing for these elections, especially the Electoral Committee. Chinyangwa addressed a press conference in Johannesburg this morning. I had a meeting and <coughs> uh, with Safa first, and then I had a meeting separately with residential aspirant Essing Novo, and that led to uh, a scenario in which I was shuffling in between this room where we are and upstairs in the 27th floor, and then finally I got a breakthrough somewhere around 1.30 a.m. and uh, then we, we then brought the SAFA team in here again. They met with Essie. Uh, I've passed on the pictures of just the conclusive part which was pictures. And um, what I want to say, share with you, there is an agreement which I can't uh, send to uh, the media. Uh, was signed by both, uh, both parties, I must say. Um, and, and that agreement basically does in itself uh, bring, bring closure to the uh, uh, dispute that is arisen because of the uh, um, 24th uh, March elections. Well, Ishnyangwa first met with Jordan last night and followed that up with a three-hour meeting with Ngobo. And this is when the agreement between the two factions was reached and signed by the two parties involved following the withdrawal of the Independent Elections Commission from overseeing these elections. It now means that SAFA will have to start the process from scratch. One, that, you know, there will be an electoral committee uh, appointed or elected uh, just before any election takes place and uh, uh, SAFA NEC is attending to that, as agreed, and then that um, SE Noble uh, will not be standing uh, for the SAFA presidency. That those are the two things I just simply wanted to tell you, but the critical one was the fact that I think I'm sure there was uh, news every day about the presidency. I'm sure uh, 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 you know about that. Uh, so my mission here is is, 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 is complete. Meanwhile, South Africa have climbed to num- um, one place to 76th in the world in the latest FIFA World Rankings released earlier today. Bafana Bafana also moved one place to 15th position on the continent. Four out of the top five African teams ranked, um, rather teams um, have quali- um, ranked in the top five in Africa, have qualified for Russia 2018 with Tunisia retaining their top position, followed by Senegal, the DR Congo, Morocco, as well as Egypt. The DR Congo ranked third on the continent and 39 in the world will not be in Russia. Meanwhile, the top five teams in the world remained the same with World Cup holders Germany in top position, followed by Brazil, Portugal, Argentina, as well as Belgium. And finally, in rugby news, England have denied a conflict of interest after one of the officials appointed for the six-nation clash against Ireland on Saturday refereed one of the trading sessions this week. Marius van Vestesen will be the assistant referee for Saturday's test at Twickenham. And according to the staff website, the South African was also utilised by England during one of their training sessions this week. Australia's Angus Gardner will be the referee on Saturday with another South African, Jakob Paper, the 
the other assistant referee. Now, what rugby's regulations allow referees to um, help players and coaches with their understandings of the laws of the game and its interpretations, but it's forbidden for an official to help any team if they are to referee them during any given tournament. However, the same ruling does not apply for assistant referees, which means England did not break no rules. Now, the issue was nonetheless brought up to um, at a press conference this week with England's assistant coach Paul Gasket was probed on this matter. Ireland have already secured the Six Nation title, but a win in Twickenham would also see them win the Grand Slam. Meanwhile, kickoff for Saturday's Test match is set for 4 p.m. Central African time. The Zion Sports News at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Nineteen fifty-five Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. More than eight thousand Ethiopians cross into Kenya to escape what they describe as a massacre of people belonging to the Oromo ethnic group. South African health authorities launch a groundbreaking automated medicine dispensing system. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda, Mohamed, technical producer Sfiso Mashekho, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We are on infochannelafrica.co.za. On WhatsApp, we're on plus 27763003327. Plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. We leave you with Ngulileni by Buddha and trademark. <laughs>